In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Now looking around the crowd here, I don't want to guess at people's ages, but everybody here looks like they remember what it was like before cell phones, right? How if you were a teenager, you could get lost for hours, and the only person that cared was who? Your parents, right? But during that time, before there were cell phones, did you ever have a loved one who was out during a storm or during a blizzard? And the longer and longer after they should have been home that you were waiting, you just sat there anxiously waiting, hoping the phone didn't ring. Because if the phone rang, that was really bad news, right? But you, you can remember not sleeping, praying, waiting anxiously for them to walk in that door. Hold on to that thought, that feeling for just a few minutes. The hand of the Lord came upon me, and he brought me out by the Spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of a valley. It was full of bones. Let's back up and set the stage a little bit. Daniel and Ezekiel and many other young people were taken captivity into Babylon. About five years into that captivity, Ezekiel was living along one of the tributaries of the Euphrates River in modern Iraq. God sent him out to be a prophet. And God uses him to tell his people that God is holy, but his mercy is great. God's people are despondent in their exile. And God keeps reminding them that he's promised them they will not be there forever. Then one day the Lord comes and shows him this valley of bones, just bones, a very macabre sight. And then God asks him, Mortal, can these bones live? And Ezekiel says, O Lord, you know. I mean, I wouldn't know the answer if God stuck me in front of a bunch of bones and said, will they live? And that's what Ezekiel says. God, I don't know, but you do. Tell me. And God tells him to go out to prophesy, to preach to the bones. And Ezekiel steps out in faith and obeys. And it says, and as I prophesied, suddenly there was a noise, a rattling, and the bones came together, bone to bone. I looked, and there were sinews on them, and flesh came on them, and skin covered them, but there was no breath in them. Now the bones have gone from being skeletons just to corpses. I'm not sure if that's a better visual image or not. But they're not breathing. They're not alive. And God tells them again, go and prophesy to the bodies. Now it's worth noting here that there's one Hebrew word that depending on context we use for the word breath, for the, for, for the word spirit, and for the word wind. Only one. Just ponder that as you're reading this passage. Just think about it for a moment. Ezekiel writes, I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them and they lived and stood on their feet, a vast multitude. Now at the beginning of this passage, the spirit of the Lord came out and brought him to the valley. It's the breath, the wind, the spirit that brings these people back to life. But this isn't an early CPR class. It's God telling his people, mortal, these bones are the whole house of Israel. They say our bones are dried up and our hope is lost. We are cut off completely. Therefore prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, I'm going to open your graves and bring you up from your graves. O oh, my people, and I will bring you back to the land of Israel. And you will know that I have the Lord when I open your graves and bring you back from the grave. I'll put my spirit within you and you will live. And I'll place you on your own soil, that you will know that I, the Lord, have spoken and will act. God has promised them that they'll be saved from their captivity. 
But over time, after they returned from captivity, God's people took this prophecy as a sign that God would also save them from eternal death. That they wouldn't spend eternity just buried in the ground. That God, through his spirit, would bring them up out of the grave. All of his children. Out of the depths I have called to you, O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears consider well the voice of my supplication. If you, Lord, were to note what is done amiss, O Lord, who could stand? Our psalmist knows something about the depths that we can find ourselves in. Like those times we look at God's holiness and know that we just come up short. Like God's people in Ezekiel's day. He says, Lord, if you keep a record and read us back all of our sins, who can stand before you? But then he says, I wait for the Lord. My soul waits for him. In his word is my hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchman for the morning. More than watchman for the morning. We have hope. God's mercy transcends what we deserve. The psalmist here is waiting anxiously for that grace to be shown to him. That same feeling we talked about at the beginning when we were waiting for someone that we can't get a hold of. And the storm is out there and we don't know what's going on. The anger, the fear, all the emotions that well up within us. But we have a promise. O Israel, wait for the Lord. For with the Lord there is mercy. With him there is plenteous redemption. And he shall free Israel from all their sins. The promise that God gave to Israel. That there was a day coming when his people would be returned home. That there was a day coming when the grave could not hold them down. The promise of God that the psalmist relies on is that God will forgive all of us. No matter what we've done. Our gospel begins, Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and his sister Martha. Now Mary and Martha are no strangers to Jesus. In Luke 10, we see Jesus teaching in their house, and the sisters start an argument over, what should we be doing when the house is full of guests and Jesus is teaching? Mary anoints Jesus with costly perfume and then wipes it up with her hair, so much so that some of the disciples complain, Lord, why didn't we just take that perfume and spend all that money on the poor. Now their brother brother Lazarus is sick, and they send a message to Jesus to come and heal him. And Jesus says, listen, this isn't going to lead to him dying permanently. He'll just be asleep. And he stays and keeps teaching for two more days. And then he starts heading south. And as they're getting ready to head south, the disciples say to him, listen, Jesus, they're trying to kill you. Let's not go there. Bethany's a suburb of Jerusalem. We've got to walk through Jerusalem to probably get there. People will know. But Jesus says, listen, I need to go and wake Lazarus up from his sleep. And they say, why do you need to do that, Lord? If he's asleep, he'll, he'll wake up. And Jesus has to tell them, no, he's dead. And they're confused. Thomas seems to think that this is the time they're all going to go and die. He says, all right, Lord, I'm ready to go. If it's my time, let's go. And as they're approaching Bethany, They find out that Lazarus has been in the tomb for four days. The Christmas carol has an opening line that says, Marley was dead to begin with. Dickens here is borrowing from John in the gospel. Now Dickens spends, if you've ever read the Christmas carol, several paragraphs elaborating that really Marley was dead. And I want to quote a bit here that I find appropriate towards the end of that discussion. There is no doubt that Marley was dead. This must be distinctly understood, or nothing wonderful can come of the story I'm about to relate. If we're not perfectly convinced that Hamlet's father died before the play began, there would be nothing remarkable in his taking a stroll at night, in an easterly wind, on his own walls, 
than there would be another, any other middle-aged gentleman rashly turning out in the dark in a breezy spot. Say St. Paul's Churchyard, for instance, literally to astonish his son's weak mind. Dickens is saying that if we don't believe Marley is dead, then nothing supernatural is at work, and everything in the story is just about people trying to scare Scrooge straight. John wanted everyone to understand that Lazarus was dead, not on death's door, not mostly dead, but already in the tomb. And he'd been there for four days. And four was important, because in those days, the Jewish people had a belief that the soul and spirit would stay by a person's body for up to three days, and at the end of the third day, they'd go off to their reward. It's been four days now. Mourners are still arriving from all over to pay their respects. And if you don't understand that he's dead, what we see happen here is just another healing. Martha doesn't even let Jesus get into the village. She says, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that God will do whatever you ask of him. And Jesus tells her that Lazarus will rise again. And Martha says, yep, I know he is, just like Ezekiel said, right? In the last days. And then Jesus says, I am the resurrection, I am the life. Those who believe in me, even though they die, will live. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. And asked her, do you believe this? I am the resurrection, I am the life. I am is the same phrase that God used to tell Moses who he was. And here Jesus is saying about, using that phrase about himself. And Mary answers the way that I hope all Christians would answer. Yes, Lord, I believe that you're the Messiah, the Son of God, the one coming into the world. And then Martha sends Mary to Jesus. And with a crowd following, she repeats the charge, Lord, if you've been there, my brother would not have died. And Jesus, seeing the grief in Mary, and in all the family and friends that were with her, asks where he is buried. And as they're guided there, in the midst of all the mourners, Jesus cries. Jesus cries even knowing that in just a few minutes what's about to happen. He weeps with those who are weeping. And he hears in the crowd the repeating complaint. He can make the, the blind to see and the deaf to hear. Why couldn't he be bothered to come and heal his friend? And they get to the tomb. Listen to the description of the tomb from the gospel. It was a cave, and a stone was lying against it. Some beautiful foreshadowing there. And when he tells them to move the stone, Martha, the one who said she just believed, is like, Jesus, you don't understand. It's been four days. Four. He's decomposing. And Jesus tells her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you'd see the glory of God? And the stone was rolled away. And then Jesus prays aloud, Father, I thank you for having heard me. I know that you always hear me, and I say this for the sake of the crowd standing here, so they may believe that you sent me. When he said this, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And Lazarus does, still bound up in his grave clothes. And Jesus tells them to unbind him and let him go. And it said that many believed. Now Paul will say in Romans, but if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. For the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. He who raised Christ from the dead will give life to your mortal bodies, also through his spirit that dwells in you. The same spirit that raised Christ from the dead, that raised Lazarus from the dead, that promises forgiveness and mercy to those who seek it, the same spirit that showed Ezekiel the valley of bones, and the, the one that brought them back to life. That is the spirit that lives inside of every believer today. 
taken us from being dead in our sins to being alive in Christ. And one day we have a great hope that he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to our mortal bodies through his indwelling spirit. This evening, if you need to meet Jesus and have the spirit dwell within you, let us talk after the service. But as we're walking this evening, and when you're walking in those moments going forth and in those valleys, remember the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead is with you. Amen. Amen.